Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the predatory pricing podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on January 24th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. And my co-host, whose New York apartment lacks a gold elevator, is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week on Twill, we welcome back Erin Fusé-Brown, professor of law at Georgia State College of Law, where she teaches administrative law, health law, financing and delivery, and the healthcare transactional and regulatory practicum. She is a faculty member at uh, Georgia State's wonderful Center for Law, Health and Society, and her areas of research are just perfect for uh, contemporary health law, uh, healthcare pricing, healthcare markets, the ACA, healthcare competition and regulation, and so on. Uh, so great to have you back on the pod, Erin. Well, I love being here. Thanks uh, to both of you. It's great to be back. Aaron has a wonderful new article uh, that's uh, in draft at the moment um, that we've had the opportunity of reading and which we will reference in the show notes. And it's about medical billing and uh, consumer protection. It's a uh, it's a Kafkaesque uh, world that you describe in that piece, uh, Aaron. Um, perhaps not terribly surprising, given that uh, sort of the the disease of cost sharing is already with us and will probably increase if we see caps on employer deductibility of employee premiums. We are likely to see the return of medical underwriting, which is likely to uh, raise uh, the costs for many and, and therefore potential debt for many. And even heretofore protected areas such as Medicare seem to be staring down the Second Amendment weapon towards uh, the possibility of balanced billing. So... Could you start us off by describing the uh, the key problems as you see them uh, when it comes to billing and and consumer protection, and uh, we'll take it from there. Great, yeah. So it is it is a pretty depressing um, picture when you think about the typical or a fairly typical consumer experience of um, shopping for and then and then getting billed for healthcare services in this country. So I really divide up the consumer. Um, protection issues for patients into three big buckets. Um, the first bucket are what are known as surprise medical bills. And so surprise medical bills, you might have heard about, they're all the rage in the news because they are just so unbelievable. Um, it's the idea that you could go to an in-network facility um, and yet get an out-of-network bill, including a balance bill and all of the out-of-network cost sharing that is associated with it um, because, the say, the anesthesiologist is out-of-network at the in-network hospital hospital that you went to or the you know emergency room physician is out of network at the in-network emergency room that you that you went to so um, surprise medical bills gets a gets a lot of press coverage and I spend a fair amount of time talking about that phenomenon um, and the reason that they're so sort of frustrating from a consumer perspective is because they're um, they're both unanticipated and involuntary so they they're surprising I mean that you don't know you're going to get one until you get the bill afterwards and there's nothing you can do to avoid them and so really as a consumer, your hands are tied until you get the bill. And then, um, you know, certain states are moving forward with trying to protect consumers from this problem. But for the most part, most of us are unprotected from surprise medical bills. I did read of one case, I think it was, that involved what looked like fully covered pediatric care for a kid. And the surprise that came in the bill was that the emergency helicopter transport was out of network, yes. which was one of mm -hmm. those OMG moments. Mm -hmm. That's right. So uh, a lot of
lot of times surprise bills arise in emergency scenarios where you can't really do any research ahead of time. Um, and a lot of times it's not just the, you know, the emergency room itself or the physicians, but like you said, the transport. And in the case of a helicopter, that's a, you know, five to six figure bill um, if they turn out to be out of network and therefore uncapped. You know, not only can you be charged the full price, but there really is no cap to how much you owe. Your out-of-pocket cost sharing isn't capped in that regard. So yeah, it could be the the ambulance service or the emergency helicopter or whatever, um, and that can lead to a very very high um, a high bill. So you know, surprise medical bills again are an issue that's that's getting a lot of attention at, in state legislatures um, because they are just so uh, they seem so pernicious because you can't avoid them. You have no choice in the matter, um, and frankly, especially if it's really acute needs, you can't you you can't really negotiate your way out of them ahead of time. And I just wanted to note, uh, just to tie this into some things that are currently happening on the state level, uh, the former CMS administrator Andy Slavitt, who's been a real Twitter stalwart, um, especially since the election, just tweeted out a, uh, a proposed bill in Minnesota that just passed the House that was called the Drizkowski Amendment, which said that the following health issues will no longer be required in health insurance coverage, and it included any off-label drug use, emergency services, continuity of care, and Lyme disease. So it seems as though what's amazing to me is that I think that thanks to work like yours, Aaron, uh, and, and some other scholars and advocates, uh, this was emerging as a policy issue over the past couple of years. It was getting some traction. It appeared that you know there needed to be something done about it. But it seems as though what's happening now is that, uh, especially with the potential for the Trump executive order to grant regulatory flexibility to HHS to in turn grant to the states on various things, um, the direction in many states might well be to uh, effectively exacerbate the problem by creating uh, less essential benefits and more opportunities to get uh, uh, around, even covering things that anyone would assume would necessarily be in something uh, called insurance with an warranty of merchantability as insurance. But then on the other side, we're going to see some states drift, Frank, in the opposite direction. So I think uh, late last week, New York changed their, or amended their insurance uh, code such that all of those FDA contraceptive types were mandatory, um, exactly taking um, uh, taking that approach, but, but in the opposite direction, uh, actually saying they had to be covered. Yes, and that is going to be another element of the bifurcation of the healthcare system. Um, and I guess the and thinking about that silver lining and working back towards some of the uh, issues discussed in Aaron's piece, Aaron, would you say that there have been some good legislative victories on surprise medical billing over the past couple of years? Yeah, I think that there have. And so one of the stories that is emerging is one of sort of state innovation at its best. Um, so we see New York sort of led the charge on surprise billing passing its law um, a couple years ago and and really sort of trying to comprehensively deal with this solution. Um, and then based on the model of New York, we saw several other, you know, a handful of other states follow suit, not exactly mimicking entirely what New York did, but also sort of innovating and trying new things and trying to fix gaps maybe identified in the New York law. So New York is pretty comprehensive, um, then followed Connecticut. Um, Connecticut's law is also fairly comprehensive insofar as it you know prevents people from being um, charged surprise bills by their providers. It requires you know plans to protect their members from surprise medical bills and then you know figure out different ways for the plans and 
the providers to work it out amongst themselves when you happen to have an out-of-network um, type of situation where you were at an in-network in facility, the, the patient is sort of protected or held harmless from the financial ramifications and the plan, the provider have to work it out amongst themselves. Um, and then California um, also passed a law this past year, which is really quite comprehensive and takes it even a step beyond what New York and Connecticut did. Florida passed a slightly more uh, slimmed version of it. It's a, it's, it doesn't quite tackle all of the issues, but it does address some of the, the fundamental problems of balanced billing. And then Texas has a, you know, pretty, again, a, a pretty thin protection against surprise medical billing, but it has waded into the fray, trying to introduce some dispute resolution mechanisms into their, you know, into into what happens when you encounter a surprise medical bill at an emergency facility, for example. So we see a lot of state innovation, and those five states are definitely out in front. But at the same time, we see a lot of bills appearing, um, both last last year's legislature le legislative session, and I imagine this year, we're starting to see a lot of those bills come forward, um, moving again, more in the direction of New York. Um, but I think you're right that we also see sort of clawing back at the same time. And so it's mind, we have to be mindful that these all work in tandem. Um, when I started writing this paper, I didn't necessarily intend it to be this uh, enormous uh, I thought it was going to be a fairly quick piece of work, and it ended up being really long and involved because the number of consumer violations that I found sort of like it just, if you can imagine it, there it was. And so, um, and then there was a, someone who was trying to create a policy response to address it. So surprise billing sort of opens the paper, but then I kind of go on to other things that um, may or may not get as much attention. Um, just, on, just on the surprise billing, if, if I may just interrupt you, Aaron, you both has to identifying the problem and also um, um, categorizing the the state responses the the few that we have so far you distinguish between surprise medical bills and balance bills um and you do it basically on the idea of surprise as opposed to voluntariness or anticipated thing could you um explain those a little bit more um particularly balance billing for our listeners because that's quite a um a, a tough area to to understand whenever i teach health insurance um i have my students look at a you know the georgia state health plan booklet and try to see if they can understand all the fine print and the one that I I like to draw their attention to the most is the, the the little footnote that says, you know, if you go out of network or you get services from an out of network provider, um, then you can be balance billed. And so I ask them, well, what is this? And they have to flip to the glossary. And the balance bill is basically the difference between whatever it is the provider wants to, to charge, which elsewhere I've written about is, you know, usually a fairly um, high price, their full charges that are, you know, bear no resemblance to their discounted rate that the insurance company gets, and whatever your insurance company is willing to pay. So the insurance company then has to engage in this sort of negotiation of what they're going to cover. Usually it's some percentage of, you know, what's called usual and customary rates. And then, you know, depending on what the balance is, it could be, you know, 50% of the bill um, it could be charged to the patient as the balance. And so balance billing is sort of the general phenomenon that happens when you get out of network care, your plan covers a portion of it. Um, but then you can you the patient can get the, the bill for the balance, which can be, you know, a really large uh, percentage of the bill. So what is the difference between a balance bill and a surprise bill? Well, balance bills um, are part of surprise bills. So one of the things that you get as your surprise is that you get a big balance bill um, in the mail when you uh, 
when you see an out-of-network provider inadvertently. You also will get um, higher cost sharing. So a lot of times the plan will say not only will you get, you, can you be balance billed, but your co-insurance is instead of 10% is 30%. Um, and they'll also charge it to a different deductible. An out-of-network deductible isn't capped, for example, in, in most plans. And so uh, there are a lot of sort of ramifications that are really hard to wrap your head around in a surprise billing scenario that comes with seeing out-of-network providers. But balance bills are just that one phenomenon of being charged the difference between what your plan will cover and what the full charges are. Now, you can you can intentionally trigger a balance bill in the sense that you could um, say, nope, you know, it's really important for me to see this out-of-network provider. My plan, I understand, is only going to cover a part of it, so I, you know, I assume that risk. Um, that's not what a surprise bill is. A surprise bill is one that the patient really had no intention of, um, you know, no intention of triggering because when they went to the emergency room, you know, they, they did not know that they were going to see an out-of-network emergency room physician. They thought, you know, this emergency room is in network or it's an emergency. I'm unconscious. I can't choose. Um, and so that's the phenomenon where the two come together is sort of involuntary balance bills are, are, are part of surprise bills. Yes. And this balance billing, I think a lot of folks don't quite appreciate how important it is to the overall scheme of utilizing insurance to control medical costs somewhat. Because I remember writing back in 2006 about concierge medicine, retainer care, boutique medicine. And one of the things that became a barrier to its adoption was the fact that Medicare had certain rules about balance billing, I think above 115% or above 15% of the overall amount that could be billed at that time. And it sort of stood in the way of doctors who wanted to add on additional billing to what they were getting for Medicare reimbursement. I believe that Tom Price wants to uh, get rid of that or undermine that. I'm not certain. But I do think that, yeah, if you limitations on balance billing are an extremely important uh, arrow in the quiver of health cost containment via insurance um, policies. Now, moving on to, you mentioned that you had two other distinct areas, uh, the opaque a la carte medical bills and the medical debt collection and reporting uh, issues. Could you discuss this issue with the opaque a la carte medical bills and your model policy to address those? Sure. Some of the issues with healthcare shopping as a consumer is that you can't shop because you don't know what the price or the quality of the service is ahead of time. Um, for the most part, you know, it's still true that healthcare is um, something that you only find out the price of after you've rent, you know, you've gotten the service and you get the bill. Um, and so there are lots of policies that try to get around price, you know, try to get to price transparency, knowing that consumerism is totally, you know, here. We're, we are at the consumer-directed healthcare. Uh, all our plans basically are, are, you know, high deductible plans these days, and, or the vast majority of them are. So, you know, price sensitivity of the of the consumer is um, something that policymakers are starting to try to push in terms of trying to contain healthcare costs. But if you don't know what the price is, then you can't really make uh, price-based decisions. And if you only have price, then you can't make quality-based decisions. Um, so that's one part of the problem. But it's not just that you don't know the price. It's that even if you could find out the price, it's really hard to know what to do with it because the prices don't make any sense. They're they're sort of a la carte and, un, and unbundled in ways that make no sense. And I pick on one particular phenomenon that's the the added facility fees. That outpatient services, when when outpatient services are rendered by a hospital-based, you know, physician practice, then those outpatient services basically get tacked on in addition to the 
physician fee, you get a facility fee on top of it. Um, and that makes sense when you, let's say, go to the emergency room and you can understand why the hospital would need to charge a fee for keeping its ER operated and staffed and ready to go at any 24-7. Um, but it's different. Let's say you go and get chemotherapy or you're used to getting an echocardiogram um, and you go to your physician's office to do it or an outpatient clinic and, you know, you go in for that service one day and the price is, you know, $300 and you go back, you know, three months later and the same uh, service, same location, same staff, same supplies, everything's the same except now it's $1,000. And where did that extra, you know, $700 come from? Well, often it's a facility fee. And the, what has happened in the meantime is that the physician practice was acquired by a hospital. So now your physician's office is an outpatient department of a hospital and they can tack on a facility fee, even though there's nothing different about the service to justify that added cost. Um, so even if that sort of thing is transparent, it's really hard for consumers to navigate it. And so I talk about opaque prices, but also this notion of a la carte or facility fees that, um, that really can change the amount the patient owes, but the patient feels sort of stuck, that they have no recourse um, but, to, um, but to really you know, pay the bill, um, especially if it's a physician for an ongoing type of care that they've been getting for, you know, on an outpatient basis, suddenly their physician's office suddenly became an outpatient department of a hospital because of some corporate transaction, um, corporate consolidation sort of that they had no idea of and no say in. Um, what's the model policy to address that? Well, Medicare actually took a significant step toward fixing um, the facility fee problem. Um, so the facility fee issue was addressed in the Balanced Budget Act of 2015 in Medicare in the in the sort of wonkish term site neutral payment. And so that's just the notion that you would pay that Medicare is going to pay the same price for the same types of service, whether it's provided at a standalone community physician's office, or in a outpatient department of a hospital. Um, and the reason is exactly, you know, what I described, there's no just justifiable reason for Medicare to pay more for the um, for the service just because the hospital acquired the physician practice. Now, there are a lot of sort of loopholes in that uh, in that balanced budget act, the site neutral payment policy, one of which is it only applies to new, um, newly acquired physician practices. So it doesn't apply to the all the grandfathered um, physician practices that have been, you know, gobbled up in the last few years by hospital systems. Um, but it is sort of a move in the right direction. And I think, you know, some states are sort of paying attention in Connecticut in particular, trying to kind of, to do the same thing for uh, their private payers and for other payers. So I think it's one of those issues that is amenable to payment reform, again, but it has to be something that uh, people experience um, to understand because it really doesn't make any sense when, when you're the patient and, and you get one of these facility fee bills. This must be quite intentional by the providers, particularly the large providers, to continue this opaque uh, approach to billing um, to not train their staff so that they can answer patient questions about how much will my bill be. It, it strikes me as as uh, as indefensible as the way that we see providers gaming uh, the federal reimbursement uh, system. Um, and we have really quite strong fraud and abuse laws that we have passed to try and deter them from these practices. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, the idea of, you know, I don't know about gaming, but it's certainly not in big providers' uh, interests to make it obvious that the, you know, the large, very sophisticated, dominant healthcare systems have generally, generally charged much higher prices than, you know, the standalone community hospital, um, and because of their market power. And so, you know, to the extent that they had to compete on price, they probably wouldn't do quite as well. And historically, they've gotten away with it because patients have insurance. So patients have been cost insensitive in the past because, or price insensitive, because they had insurance. And so once they paid their premium, other than a copay or a minimal coinsurance, the patient didn't feel the difference between going to the big, expensive, dominant healthcare system for their MRI versus um, a smaller provider um, who may do just as well, but doesn't, but doesn't charge quite as much. So the difference, of course, now is that with high deductible healthcare and and uh, this whole drive to consumerism, the patient is bearing more and more of that cost. So the free market aspect uh, argument here is, well, then patients should have, because they have more skin in the game, they're going to be price sensitive, they're going to shop, that's going to force the market to, you know, compete on price. Um, and we need to build more price transparency tools, which many states are out in front doing. Again, it's a lot of times it's states that have built very comprehensive and usable price transparency tools. Um, but Mark Hall and others have written really good accounts of why this isn't alone going to solve the price and cost problem in healthcare because healthcare consumers really have a hard time acting as consumers. If you think about your own experience going to the doctor, you know the last thing you want to bring up is how much is this going to cost me um, when you know your your mother or your child is on the gurney um, heading into surgery or is there you know is the anesthesiologist in network or out of network? And they say, well, I don't know. And if they told you they're out of network, are you really going to say, well, stop surgery and go find me an in network anesthesiologist or cancel it and see if you can schedule me for a time? when I can, you know, have someone in network or at a cheaper facility um, or whatnot. So I think all of these things belie the notion that, you know, consumerism is touted as this great cost um, saving strategy in healthcare, but really it's more complicated than that because consumers have a really hard time both processing all this complex information, but also even if they can, they're sophisticated, they have a hard time emotionally making these decisions, um, you know, when life or death is sort of staring them in the face. I do think that's an excellent uh, account of what's the problem, what the problems are with a consumer-directed healthcare-driven vision of the response to the issues here. But I want to raise another issue, Aaron, and I mean, and I think this is part of the sort of postmortem after or as the ACA appears to be unraveling. Um, or as we witness, you know, mass discontent with many of the shortcomings of um, the healthcare system, it seems to me that so many of the things that are in your article could have been foreseen by someone with an appreciation of the direction of health insurance during the 2000s in the Bush administration. Um, just speaking as somebody who was blogging about healthcare from, you know, I mean, to this day, but certainly back in 2005, 2006. I was writing about these things, about the medical bankruptcies. Elizabeth Warren, Melissa Jacoby, people were writing about medical bankruptcies at that time. All of that literature clearly showed the ability of massive medical bills that people thought would be covered by insurance but was not. The ability of those bills to basically sink them financially. So what I'm wondering is, you know, how was it that during the drafting of the ACA, this was not part of the discussion? Was there an idea that essentially the private insurers had 
turn the corner and we're going to become sort of virtuous partners of the federal government? Was that sort of the impression given to folks, say, in the Senate Finance Committee and others who had lots of responsibility for drafting this bill? Was it a sort of Lucy with a football situation? Um, you know, I'm just trying to think, like, what, what exactly were, was going on in people's minds when they put this bill forward that they couldn't have foreseen that all of these uh, tactics were going to be unleashed onto healthcare consumers and would be blamed, ultimately, by many people on the ACA itself? That's a really good question. Um, I think that, you know, and you of all people know this because you were, you were following it so closely. I think that these are the, the problems that, yes, they were anticipated, um, or they could have been anticipated, but they were like the small fry problems compared to the problem of getting people covered. And I think that there was so much effort in terms of, okay, if we have to pick, you know, not just one beast to slay, but, you know, five of the 10 beasts, you know, that we can get into the ACA, we're going to get coverage. And that was, you know, coverage first. And then once we get everyone covered, that'll really take care of a lot of this problem. And actually, you know, I think empirically, it's been shown that yes, you know, to the extent that medically related financial distress has gone down under the ACA, for the most part, especially in the Medicaid expansion states for those people who got Medicaid coverage. So I think that there have been sort of movements forward, but there was a lot of hope and weight put on getting people covered, getting people in the system, um, because insurance is really your best and first consumer protection against medical, you know, debt and all of the other um, unforeseen consequences or foreseeable consequences. But I think the other point, that you're making is, yeah, but then there are all these other distortions. And so why don't we see more consumer protections in the Affordable Care Act? There are actually several consumer protections in the Affordable Care Act. Um, some of them are the ACA's limits on cost sharing. Um, of course, those limits on cost sharing, which are very powerful for in-network care, uh, doesn't apply to out-of-network care, and it doesn't apply to balance billing. So there were some sort of definitional issues um, that I don't know if there was lobbying behind the scenes to limit the definition, or if it was just like, you know, know, we're going to try to we're going to try to deal with the problem that we can that we can deal with. And um, the other one is sort of the emergency medical services, again, that out of network emergency care has to be covered by your, your plan. Um, and you have to pay the same cost sharing. But of course, there was nothing in it about balance billing. And so it doesn't really get at surprise medical bills, it doesn't get at balance billing, it doesn't get at the whole incentive that that creates for out of network emergency rooms to, you know, hospitals to stay out of network, because they're going to get paid both ways. Um, they're frankly going to get paid more more if they stay out of network. So there are lots of these like attempts, right? And so when I talk about medical debt collection, there were the IRS rules that try to make nonprofit hospitals sort of, uh, you know, avoid the, you know, extraordinary collection actions until they've at least first made an effort to determine whether the patient would be eligible for financial assistance. Again, it's sort of a half solution to the problem because it doesn't apply to for-profit hospitals, it doesn't apply to physicians who are for-profit, um, but it does, you know, sort of get us moving in that direction. So I think the ACA tried to put in place some consumer financial protections for healthcare consumers, um, but at the same time was sort of not enough uh, to stem the tide of consumer-directed health care, narrowing of networks, um, you know, the rise of deductibles, and the fact that these practices really um, emerge as a result of some of the, you know, some of the changes. Like, you can't medically underwrite anymore. Well, you can probably after the ACA goes away, but not under the ACA. And so what else, you know, what else can we do? Well, we can narrow the networks. That's what we can do to save money. Um, and that's going to create all of these uh, side effects for the, for the patient. So I think you're 
you're right that it wasn't comprehensive um, in terms of what the Affordable Care Act could do and couldn't, you know, any sort of thinking health policymaker could have anticipated this is where we'd be. But I think we also thought we'd had a second bite at the apple that, okay, we'll go fix these problems after we get people covered. Um, and that sort of was the thinking up until, you know, November 9th. So yeah, I think the uh, ACA was uh, keep Harry and Louise happy. And then uh, uh, we'll, we'll fix the rest in ACA too. I in in your article, Erin, I I thought when you were talking about the IRS rules limiting, uh, as you put it, the worst billing and collection practices of tax exempt hospitals. In addition to to acknowledging, obviously, that tax exempt uh, uh, hospitals are not the whole uh, ball game here, I didn't get the sense that you were wildly happy with how those rules were playing out in practice and whether they really were changing provider behavior. Is is that uh, me just uh, projecting my own biases or, or did did I see that in what you were writing? No, I think I think that is sort of what I was hinting at, if not saying outright. And that is that the IRS rules um, for tax exempt hospitals, you know, again, they only reach as far as the, the tax exempt hospital. It doesn't get to the, the physician, the emergency physician group that contracts with the hospital. It doesn't get to the um, the for-profit hospital or, or anyone else. So I think it's sort of limited in scope in that regard, but also it gave a lot of discretion to the hospital to basically say, we're going to let you define who's eligible for financial assistance and the protections only flow to those patients, no one else. Um, and so uh, there are a lot of ways to get around the protections in the IRS rules. They're, they're a good start. Um, Chuck Grassley you know, certainly cares about this issue or cared about this issue. Um, but I think that states have gone a lot further you know, California in particular has a very strong, at least with respect to hospital debt collection, a very strong law that that limits all sorts of collection practices for any, you know, for all types of hospitals. So I think it's interesting that, you know, the ACA had these nuggets, but really it was the states that we see pick up the mantle and fill in and really come up with muscular protections for consumers, whether it's surprise billing laws, whether it's debt collection laws for medical debt, whether it's, um, you know, network adequacy rules. Um, and other types of sort of, again, wonky health insurance regulation that is really aimed at protecting consumers for some of these practices. So I think, you know, the ACA created sort of the the weaker sort of floor. And then you see states layering on top of that really much stronger, more nuanced protections. And then you get to sort of the, the sort of disheartening punchline, which is then federalism works in the opposite direction because you have ERISA, which is the, you know, the law that governs uh, employee benefit plans. And for health care that's covered by your employer, a lot of these innovations, at least for self-funded employers, because of the breadth and the scope of ERISA preemption, doesn't apply even in states that, you know, go, you know, two, 10 or 15 steps further. Those protections don't apply to self-funded health plans because of ERISA preemption. Um, and so we're right back at the federal government with hat in hand, waiting for the federal government to fix these problems. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think this federal government under the Trump administration is that interested, frankly, in in uh, in protecting consumers. And Aaron, I was just wondering, you know, the, the ERISA is always such a vexed topic. Could you explain the basic contours of the ERISA law? And then just to confirm, 
Is it the case that essentially because of the uh, sweeping scope of ERISA preemption with respect to self-funded plans, none of the model policies that you recommend, if adopted on the state level, would apply to the, what is it now, 50-60% of uh, people in privately insured plans that are part of these self-funded plans? Uh, you're correct in your in your last summary statement. In terms of ERISA preemption, so ERISA is that those course that 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 class in my health law course where everyone sort of takes a deep breath and and steals themselves for what they think is going to be a terrible experience. So <laughs> trying to boil it down um, in a simple term is ERISA again is the federal law that governs employee benefit plans. And the way ERISA preemption works is that sort of the first question you ask is is it express is the state law expressly preempted by ERISA because it relates to um, an employee benefit plan and that's been construed very broadly and then you have to go through these different and analytical steps one the first of which is um, it, you know the state law might be expressly preempted because it sort of relates to or regulates or has an effect on employee benefit plans like a health plan um, but if it's an insurance plan if it's insurance regulation um, by the state then it would be saved from preemption so then the second thing you have to ask yourself is is the plan a fully insured plan or is it a self-insured plan and that's something that is completely not apparent to the average consumer I don't think most people um, even who know a lot about health health policy and health insurance know whether their particular employee benefit plan is self-insured or not because it's administered by what looks like an insurance company. You still get your, you know, your insurance card from the insurance company. They still manage your network and process your claims. And so you don't know who holds the ultimate insurance risk, whether it's your employer or this um, insurance company. So that's a big distinction that is, again, you know, very relevant, but not not apparent to the average consumer. So, So you get past, you know, state laws that regulate insurance can be saved from preemption, except as applied to self-funded health plans. And that's where you get to sort of the bottom line conclusion, um, which is for the 60% or 61% of people um, who have employer-based insurance who are insured by a a self-funded plan, none of the state law requirements that apply to health plans can be applied to them. Um, So the surprise billing laws that say your health plan has to participate in dispute resolution, or your health plan has to put in their policy um, that you cannot be charged a balance bill or you cannot be charged higher cost sharing um, in the event of a surprise bill. Those would not be enforceable against a self-funded plan, even in New York or Connecticut or California. Um, It's not totally, I mean, it's somewhat disheartening. It is. It's not totally disheartening because in all of those state laws, there are lots of um, provisions that apply directly to providers. Uh, Providers may not balance bill. Providers may not, you know, charge charge, um, send bills for um, surprise bills, things like that. And those, I think, would be enforceable because they're not regulating insurance or they're not even directed at health plans. They're directed at providers, which case law says, even if it's directed at providers and has an indirect effect on on health plans down the road, it, it doesn't fall into this ERISA preemption. So I think that's where states have to focus. And that is, um, if they want to get at sort of this problem, things like surprise billing en masse, then really what they have to do is target providers and not just rely on health plans uh, to carry out the mandates of these protections. So I I promised myself that um, one day I'm going to write an exam question that has uh, the Aresedema Clause 
Chevron and the tort rules relating to apparent agency, all sort of interwoven. And then I'm going to leave town. <laughs> going to be very hard over the next two or three years as we deal with what are essentially consumer protections at a time when we, at the moment, believe that consumer protections are not going to be very popular in Washington. Is there anything you think out of the proposals that you analyzed or the existing state statutes that you analyzed that would have any legs at the federal level, uh, given the new administration? Or are we going to go back, Arissa, um, uh, providing, of course, to Frank's comment early in the show um, that we're going to have this sort of disaggregation of health law, bifurcation of health law, I think you said, Frank, between uh, essentially red states and, uh, and blue states? It's very hard for me to predict and make any generalizations about this administration versus the Congress. You know, on the one hand, you'd think that the, the Republicans in Congress would be very sympathetic to to sort of letting states take ownership of this and really run with it. So I could imagine that it wouldn't be inconceivable for a Congress, this Congress, to consider, you know, small tweaks to ERISA to carve out tiny exceptions to the preemption scheme to let the state consumer protections in the areas of, say, transparency or in the areas of, um, you know, surprise medical billings move forward. One, because they sh they're usually in favor of states' rights, and two, they're usually in favor of transparency. Um, and so those things, you know, you'd think in theory would have some legs. That said, the you know Trump administration, um, Tom Price, as Frank mentioned, is sort of one of the few people who's on record of favoring balance billing for Medicare, um, which seems you know that would seem like a ridiculous statement to have been to make um, in health policy circles, you know, even a few months ago. So I think it's it's hard to know wh what will be um, popular with the administration and with Congress and 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 what we could expect from um, the federal government. That said, I think that there. Are are several states who are really excited to run with this. I think that there's a lot of state legislative activity, particular, particularly on surprise medical billing. And it's, you know, again, it's not just red states and blue states that are pursuing this. It's sort of all of the above. And so I think that, you know, we are going to see a little bit more of this pluralism um, or maybe, you know, d devolution to the states to, to make these decisions and to move the ball forward in terms of responding to their consumers who are saying this is this is um, you know, this is really harming our consumers and uh, they're having a hard time navigating this market that we're really turning over to consumers to really putting a lot of responsibility in consumers' hands to bring down the costs of care. But consumers can't navigate the market like ordinary consumers. You can't shop. Um, you can't protect yourself. You can't, you know, you really have no way of knowing who's in network and who's out of network. You have no recourse when you get a debt collection action filed against you. So there are so many things that really put the consumers at a disadvantage that I think states have been moving forward. But I think there's a lot more uh, promise at the state level than there is at the federal level at this point. And before anyone can speak and crush that little nugget of optimism, that was the week in health law. A really big thank you to Professor Fuse Brown for joining us. Aaron, always great fun. And of course, our listener can find you on Twitter at EFU. S-E-B-R-O-W-N. Please come back soon. Great to be here. We post our show notes at twill.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, you'll be hiding out there as well, I'm guessing. Yes. And a steady stream of healthcare links at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>